Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, and I'll be reading verses 1, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And here we have the record of Jesus healing a blind man. This follows, of course, Jesus' discourse where he declared to the people that he was the light of the world. So he declared that truth, and now he is illustrating it by means of this miracle. And hear the word of God. John 9, verses 1 through 17. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which, mean, which translated which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. They're speaking of Jesus. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division, division among them. They said to the man born blind, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, He is a prophet. Amen. And as we've uh, worked through this chapter now, we saw Jesus' words, what he said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And we saw there, of course, that many of the difficulties and many of the things that we suffer in this world, it's, it's not because of a direct sin. 
So this man nor his parents sinned. And then we saw how Jesus healed the man. What he used, he used saliva and, and mud, packed it on his eyes. And then he sent him to the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam. And he healed him. There was, note this, and this is important. There was nothing in the clay or in the waters of Siloam that healed the man. And there wasn't anything in Jesus' spit either that healed the man. That's not it. What Jesus is doing, he is showing the people the power of God. What Jesus shows them is that they must not look for healing and salvation in the power of things, but in the power of God, and particularly in the command of God. Now, we didn't get to cover the waters of Siloam. So Jesus says to him, go wash in the waters of Siloam. The word Siloam means something like uh, tranquil, peaceful, or peace in English. And this, uh, this little bit of water comes up often in the Bible. Look at the Second Kings with me. Second Kings. This would have probably come to mind when of the Syrian army. Second Kings chapter 5. Did I say First Kings? Oh, sorry. Second Kings chapter 5. Yeah, I just wanted to hear the page rustlings. Thank you, Rick. That's correct. Tricked you all. I'm just making sure everybody's awake. Excuse me. Second Kings 5, beginning at verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now remember, remember uh, this is from the Gospel of John. No prophet arises from Samaria. There's a prophet in the Old Testament in Samaria. That's just an aside. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Now, I don't... Leprosy is not a disease, really, that you deal with in America. I have, a, I have a friend who's done missionary work in India, places like that, where leprosy is, it's a, it's a thing. And they have uh, dens, holes in caves, where they make these people live. And the smells, he tells me, when you're, not even there, but when you're approaching those leprous caves and dens is atrocious. And basically what happens is your body, you know, uh, this is not a very scientific explanation of leprosy, so please, your body melts. 
That's what happens. It just, you know, fingers rot and just fall off the bone. It is a torturous and horrible disease, and it is very contagious. So this man needs to be healed. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And basically, you know, the, the, the king pitches a fit because he has no idea how to heal this man. That's a summary of verses 7 through 8. Now look at verse 10. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and heal the leprosy. What was Naaman looking for? He was looking for a show, right? Kind of like how the TV preachers do with their jackets, you know? And they knock people down and they, they blow, and, right? <laughs> That's what he was looking for. That's exactly what he was looking for. But what does he find? He finds a prophet who understands the, the power of God. Um, I love what Elisha says in verse 8. Why have you torn your clothes? He says this to the king. Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. He's going to be healed. Are you, are, um, so, verse 12. Are not the Abana and Farpah the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? So, so first, what he was looking for was a show, really, a performance, some magical feat. He would talk to his God and wave his hands. and right? So he didn't get that. And now he complains because not only are you not performing, doing some ritual to cleanse me, this little pity of a river here, you know, you can't compare it to the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? Because the water uh, of Shiloh was tranquil. It was slow flowing, right? So if you were all muddy, you jumped in there, you wouldn't get the muddy, water, mud wouldn't come off. It wasn't a strong, rushing, and great river. It wasn't anything like that. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What was Naaman's problem? Well, 
He was looking for great acts of power in pomp and circumstance. That's what he wanted. And he didn't get it. Now, if you're thinking, you know, this is the Jordan and we're talking about Shiloh, these are all, all connected. This comes up one more time. Look at Isaiah 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, the rivers of Shiloh are used to illustrate a great truth. Isaiah chapter 8. Assyria is coming, and Assyria is going to invade the land. So the people are, are, are afraid. Listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. Moreover, so keep this in mind. Keep, keep, keep what happened to Naaman in mind, and what he was looking for was great acts of power but primarily externally shown, right? He wanted the prophet to do great things. He wanted the river to be this great rushing river. Keep that in mind. Isaiah 8. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that 10 times. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that one. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Then the Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in Rezin and in Remaliah's son, now therefore behold, the Lord brings upon them the waters of the rivers strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. He will go up over his channels and over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered. Oh, you people, I, I could keep reading. I'm not going to, because I have to make the point from this, <laughs> from this passage. Now, um, it, w- what was going on? The people see the king of Jerusalem, the people see Rezin, and they think that this mighty and powerful army will be able to deliver us. Let, let's, let's go there. Let's align ourselves with them, although they are uh, not faithful to the Lord. Let's align ourselves with them. Rezin was the king of, of Damascus, and um, he was powerful, very powerful. But the river of Shiloh serves to illustrate something. The river of Shiloh was a reminder that God would send the Messiah to deliver the people. 
That's why its name was Shiloh. It means peace. And it was intended to remind the people that the Messiah would come and be their deliverer. And this weak or quiet, peaceful stream was a reminder of the nature of their Messiah, of their Savior, of the one that was coming to deliver them from the wrath of God. Now, great acts of power, and what would they to look for? Not great acts of power. They would look to someone humble and lowly and meek. Someone who wouldn't come with great pomp and circumstance. Remember when Jesus' brothers, this is also in the Gospel of John, when Jesus' brother says, hey, let's go up to Jerusalem. Right? We'll go up, you'll declare yourself to be king, they'll crown you, and you'll rule over the nation. And what Jesus says, no, it's not my time. It's not time for that. And then he goes up to the feast afterwards. Now, there's one more place that brings all of this together. And it's in Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 4. D9, chapter 49. And here's the great promise. This ties all of these references to Shiloh and to the streams and brooks that were flowing. 49. In verse 10. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter, this is the symbol of kingship and rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from uh, yes, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. So, authority, rule, and power shall not be taken from Judah. Which, here, of course, to the people of Israel would have been cryptic because there wasn't even a kingdom established yet. A kingdom was still coming. David had not been inaugurated king. And already, we are being told that in the future, a king would come out of Judah. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. That the, the people had anticipating the coming of Shiloh. He would come, and he would deliver the people. He would be exalted among them as a king and as a prince, and he would rule over the people. But what were they looking for? Remember John the Baptist's question in the Gospel of Matthew? John the Baptist gets arrested, and what does he ask? He sends his disciples to talk to Jesus, and they ask the question, are you the one who is to come? That's right. Yeah, or should we look for another? Should I look for somebody else? Because we're expecting a mighty warrior to come and destroy all of our enemies, and you're not doing that. I'm in jail, <laughs> and I'm the forerunner of the prophet, and I think you're the prophet, but nothing's happening. What's going on? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. This reference, of course, is to the Messiah. And what's he called in Isaiah 9-6? Remember, Isaiah 9-6 is before 
or after Isaiah 8 that we just read. He's called the Prince of Peace. And in Isaiah 52.7, he is described this way. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings and publishes Shiloh. Peace. And in Isaiah 66 verse 12, we read these words. Extend peace to her rivers. And it's a reference to the people. Shiloh to the people. And that theme continues throughout the book of Isaiah. Jesus, then, is this prince of peace. And the people should have known, particularly the leaders, that this was who had come. There was, in the rabbis, there's multiple discussions about Shiloh, about this little creek, this little stream, and about the coming of the Messiah, all tied together. So the religious leaders really have no excuse and note not once do they bring up the rivers of Shiloh. What do they do? They focus upon their own offenses against the Messiah. Listen to how, this is in the Gospel of John, listen to what they say. Um, in verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man, kind of, you know, dismissive, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Again, think, think about how backwards their reasoning and their thinking must have been because they see this great work of God and what's their offense? Well, he's violated our customs which weren't even biblical customs. These were just traditions that they had imbibed. And how, how often does this happen in churches? Right? A person walks in the building and they're maybe not, they're not dressed the way that we would dress. And you know, they don't come back. Or maybe they don't look the way that we would like them to or act the way that we would like them to. And what happens? Because of our traditions, we make stumbling blocks for those who are seeking Christ. This is a great fault of the Pharisees. Jesus constantly condemned them for that kind of legalism, those kinds of traditions that keep people from coming to Christ. Great stumbling blocks that are laid before men. <clears throat> but Jesus here, was Shiloh. He would come with great peace and deliverance and give this man his sight. And now the man can see. But now look at what unfolds. So that was actually part of my last sermon that I didn't get to. So this is not my sermon for today. Therefore, so he went and washed and he came back seeing. So now the man sees. Now the man sees. And here, particularly in our age, this, these, this passage is tremendous. Note first, note first that, uh, well, let's read the text. Therefore, the neighbors and all those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. 
Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, now this is interesting, right? We have this idea or this concept. It's communicated in uh, popular Christian culture that if, if, uh, if you believe in God, you can get your miracle. Have you, have you heard that kind of language? Or that you can get uh, some gift from God, some special grace, but all really it takes is faith. You've got to have faith, and as long as you have faith, you will get what you need from God. So, if you're sick, God will heal you if you have enough faith. If you're broke, God will give you money. If you're lonely, he'll give you a spouse. If your car's broke down, he'll give you a new truck, and so on and so forth, right? This prosperity gospel. But this man didn't even know Jesus was the Messiah, had no idea. He, at this point in his life, he had no faith in Christ. Listen to what he says about Jesus. A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went, I washed, and I received my sight. Then he, they asked, where is he? I don't know. I have no idea. Note, miracles are not the cause of faith. Great and mighty works like this one, the purpose of them is not to produce faith in people. Right? Jesus didn't do this so this man could believe in him. He did this so that God could be glorified. Listen to what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of, or works, excuse me, the works of God should be revealed in him. God's power should be revealed in him. In, in what way? Well, in the man receiving his sight. So the miracle itself does not produce faith. And miracles do not produce, when a, if a miracle happens to a person, and particularly in the Bible, when a miracle happens to a person, it doesn't produce faith in other people. That's not what happens. Watch as this unfolds. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received this sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I wash and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So now they're divided, but what are they divided over? They're divided over semantics. They're, they're, they're not divided over whether this is the Messiah. Remember, the Messiah would come and he would give sight to the blind. That was, in the Old Testament, that is the prerogative of God. God is the one who gives sight to the blind. And here, of course, Jesus is illustrating that great work. The great work of the new birth. 
with the spiritual eyes that are unusable, they don't work, are given sight. And the Pharisees take great offense, and those who are arguing with the Pharisees also take great offense, but nobody says, this is Shiloh. This is the Messiah. And this is what tends to happen even today in Christianity. We, we get upset over the minutia or details of things and never really press in to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what, what do I mean by this? What, what, what am I talking about? What, what are some examples? I'll give you some, some, uh, some unimportant ones first. Maybe one unimportant one, and then we'll, take, we'll think about some important ones. How, how, does, how does this kind of stuff happen? You have a church, and let's say they're fixing the place up, right? And uh, they decide, well, we're going to put um, we're going to put a metal roof on the building. And uh, no, no, we want we want tile, we want you know shingles, not tile. We want shingles on the roof. And you know what ends up happening in many instances? Out of one church, you know how many you'll get? Usually two, sometimes three and four. Because uh, Christians are not really focused upon the essentials. There's, there's this, uh, um, you know, you, we say Christians, but we can say professing Christians. They don't focus their eyes upon the essential thing, and that is what the Pharisees missed. They should have asked the question, who is this man? Who is the God that we, who is, uh, for us, who is the God that we are serving? And what would he have us to do? That is the question we ought to be asking often. Instead of flying off into these ridiculous arguments, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. And what does he say? He's a prophet. He must be a prophet because he's done this work for me. You see the simplicity at this point of this man's faith in Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know anything about him. Jesus comes and heals the man, and the man knows since because of what Christ has done for me, he must be a man of God. And this is something that doesn't, uh, that doesn't happen often, this kind of response. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So you have the crowds. And what is the general consensus among the crowds about the work that Jesus does? Well, we don't know. What are most of the religious leaders? What is their response? Well, he must be a sinner. He's not a man of God because he's a stumbling block to their tradition. And how about this man's parents? What is their response? Verse 20, we know that this is our son 
and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So you see the responses. These various responses to the work of Christ. And the response of their parents, because of the hostility that they would face and the persecution that they would go under, basically they would be cast out of society. The, um, you know, to put it in uh, modern terms, right? They, they wouldn't have their COVID pass. <laughs> they wouldn't be allowed in places and, and uh, right? They, they would be ostracized. Why would they be ostracized? Because they would be confessing that Christ has done something only God can do. This is the embarrassment that many people face when they, have, when they are professing Christians and they have family members who become Christians. This is the difficulty that they face in introducing these converted people to their other family members. <laughs> right? It's like, uh, yeah, could, could we come over? Not today. <laughs> not, not today. We, we don't, we don't want to have you around when the rest of the family is here. Because you'll embarrass us. Because you'll talk about Jesus. And this is, this is what their parents experience, this shame. This shame to be identified, not with Christ themselves, but with someone who would identify themselves with Christ. With someone who Christ had done something for. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. This is taken from the Old Testament, from the book of Joshua, when Achan steals something, it was a piece of gold, if I remember correctly. He takes this gold and he buries it, and God exacts judgment upon the people. They're not able to win their next battle. And then Joshua asks Achan, he says, Achan, give glory to God. And what that means is say the truth. They're calling this man a liar. Give God the glory. Stop lying. We know that this man is a sinner. You see the, the uh, accusation, how they continue. Jesus, uh, he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that I was blind, and now I see. Again, you see the simplicity of this man's testimony. It's nothing great. He's got nothing great to say about God. He's got nothing great to say about what happened to him. There's nothing powerful. He can't say, well, the man, you know, he stood up, up upon a rock and he cried out to heaven and the heavens opened and a lightning bolt hit my eyes where he put the spit with the clay and smoke came out of my ears and I see. No, it's a very simple testimony. And for many Christians, 
that is what God has done for us spiritually. Something that, it, yes, we have new eyes and we can see. But for many of us, it wasn't the, a thunderbolt from heaven. For many of us, it was either very fast or maybe progressively God worked in our lives. And we were blind and now we see. But, you know, when you communicate that, especially, so I did not grow up Christian, but I have been around a lot of people who have grown up Christian, and, or, and I Christian. And when they get converted and they tell their family members, their family members, no, you've been a Christian your whole life. You've always been a Christian. What are you talking about? And that, that hostility and that friction builds because... The tradition that you grew up in, you realize man, it was bankrupt. There was no power there. The gospel wasn't preached. And if it was very superficially, it wasn't applied with any force or vigor. And since it was not applied with any force or vigor, those, those people that I went to church with, there was really no life there. They weren't converted. They were not born again. And so uh, this kind of difficulty that this man is experiencing is the experience of many who get converted in unbiblical churches. Look at the man now. He's very likable, this fellow. He says, they said, uh, verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you do not want to listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? It's <laughs> a great, um, right? Very little understanding of who Jesus is, but he did something to me. He did something for me. He changed me. I couldn't see. I sat and begged and was in utter darkness. And now I have eyes. And I can see. And that is a condition of, of, of man when God saves him. I was in utter darkness. I couldn't see. I was living my life according to the course of this world. Uh, under the power of the prince of this age. And now I see. Then they reviled him again and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. Moses promised that Shiloh would come in Genesis, though. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. That's a beautiful, you know, this man, very simply, this man is uh, revealing their religious hypocrisy. He's showing them that they're the ones who are blind. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that any man, that excuse me, that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
That is, that, that is it, right? If Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. If Jesus were not from God, we shouldn't meet for church. Why? Well, what's the point? We're just messing around here. We could be making money or having fun or doing whatever. Why gather to worship him if he is not from God? But if he is from God, he can do everything that he promises. They answered and said to him, You are completely born in sins, and you are teaching us, and they cast him out. You, you see the, the, remember the question that the disciples asked? Did this man sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? They're confessing here that they knew he was blind because this was the Pharisees' theology. He, he was born blind because he must have sinned. So they're confessing. And then they cast him out. And here this casting out, this is technical language, they excommunicated him. He was no longer allowed in the synagogue or any, so he couldn't work. There was no work. Nobody was going to hire this guy to work or to do anything. So yes, now he's got his eyes, but he's got to go back to begging. Um, we're, we are, in Canada, they're there. We're not here yet in America where identifying with Jesus is going to cost you something. And it's a little blurry right now because uh, a lot of what is going on has to do generally, not, not primarily with being a Christian in, in our country, but it has to do with issue, issues of liberty and freedom. It's not uh, so that the... What's happening in America now, right, and the various issues that we're facing as a country, they have to do not primarily with religious freedom. So, so we're not being told primarily you can't meet for church. That's not what we're being told. It's, um, you know, COVID and building capacities and spread and all of the, the other stuff, right? Social distancing, wear a mask, all that kind of stuff is what we're being told. So it's not specifically religious, but as one author put it, um, Leviathan is raising his head and tentacles. When, when a government begins to usurp the kind and to take the kind of authority that they're taking, we will eventually be like Canada. I've read the email to you. I know a pastor. I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to say the name of his church. Know him personally. I've had a good relationship with him. His church has been meeting for over a year in hiding. And the health department is looking for them. The health department in Canada is trying to find them. To put them in jail and to find them for meeting as a church. We're not there yet. So when we read these kinds of passages, they, they don't have the force that they should have. You know why? Because, we, we, because of the grace of God, this country was founded upon Christian principles, and we have a great deal of freedom that people don't have. Even in the great communist state of New York, we have great, <laughs> great levels of freedom and liberty that many don't have. But let us not be naive and think that it can't get worse. Because Canada is, what, eight hours, six hours away? One little border? So this man is cast out for worshiping Christ. He's, he's basically become 
a pariah. Nobody's going to interact with him or do anything for him. He has been cast away. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. This, this is like the best setup for chapter 10. So Jesus hears that they excommunicated him, that they abandoned him, that they threw him out. And what does Jesus do? He sought him. And when he had found him, that means he was looking for him. He was probably walking around Jerusalem asking people, where's the blind guy? Where's the guy who used to stand here all the time begging? And people were probably saying, well, we don't know. They excommunicated him. So Jesus finds him. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of God? What a question. The man answers and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, you have both seen him. What an amazing thing to say to this blind man. Nobody could have ever, uh, he never had this conversation with anybody, right? (laughs) You have seen him, looking at him right now, and it is he who is talking with you. Then the blind man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And that word is not, he paid him homage, he gave him thanks. This is religious worship. He knelt and worshiped Jesus. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Really, that, that statement puts the sort of the, 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 um, the point to the chapter. This miracle is not intended just as a display of power so that people can say, look, Jesus was God. He did miracles. No, he's doing this to show that those who are blind in this world, I came to give them sight. And those who say, I can see, they're blind. They can't see. Jesus says it another way in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're righteous, if, if, if you do not need God, okay, I didn't come to save you then. Save yourself. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. The responsibility of every person who hears the Lord Jesus Christ is to say, and if you're not a Christian, is to say, I'm blind. I do not see. Lord, help my unbelief. Give me eyes to see Give me ears to hear. Give me a mind that understands. Give me a heart that responds to the words that you're preaching and teaching. Okay. You know, it's going to storm. And it's late. So let's, uh, let's, we'll finish there. And uh, we'll come back next week to see Jesus, the true shepherd now. Uh, speak to the people. Let's, let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this time in your word. And we thank you for our Lord Christ. May he grant us sight. In his name we pray. Amen.